Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Coming up on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, Little Things CEO Joe Spizer describes how he helped turn a dog food retailer into a digital media company, why building a brand online is harder than building an audience, and why dependence on Facebook doesn't keep him up at night. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Jack Marshall in New York, and I'm joined this week by my colleague, Mike Shields. Mike, how are you? I'm all right, Jack. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you. Uh, so today we're joined by Joe Spizer, who is the CEO of Little Things, which is a digital publisher focused on feel-good content. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I was hoping just to kind of kick things off. For those who aren't familiar with Little Things, um, just to give us a quick intro. Um, so it basically began as sort of the social media presence for uh, an e-commerce company that, that you were running at the time. Is, is that correct? Pet food, actually. Pet food. Out of all things. <laughs> <laughs> so just talk us through that. I mean, what was the sort of sure. evolution there? So we were running a pet food e-commerce site. This was back in 2010. And one of the ways we got most of our customers was through content marketing on Facebook. We were building and telling a ton of different stories around rescues, dogs, cats, kittens. And the audience had a lot of passion around that. They definitely gravitated towards our storytelling ability. And we took that and we focused it towards signing up for pet food. And that worked really well for a while. We scaled the business pretty significantly. But we recognized about you know four years into that enterprise that we were selling a commodity that the end user, the customer, really didn't care that much about. They could pick up the food at Amazon or Petco or PetSmart, but what they really cared about and had a lot of passion about was our content, was our stories. So that's when we said, okay, we, ha- we obviously have something really special here that's more than just shipping pet food through the mail. We have a digital media site, and it could be a, a whole company if we really focus on this. So we spun out the business, we sold off the e-commerce side, and we focused only on the, the brand of Little Things, and that's what launched in September of 14. We took the entire e-commerce audience over to us. And at the time, I think we had 800,000 fans on Facebook, and today we have over 9 million. So it's grown rather significantly in a pretty short period of, of time. Okay, so that was a, a pet flow sort of branded Facebook group that you sort of took and rebranded as, as Little Things. Is, is that correct? Yep. Yeah, it was our most loyal customers who were, you know, had a previously... Uh, had a previous relationship with uh, Petflow at the time. So the credit card in hand, women over 35, had purchased some sort of item from our store. So it was a very high-quality audience. And that demographic tends to share content significantly higher than millennials, you know, as a for instance. So because of that, when we start producing more engaging and more emotional stories, they'd want to share with their sisters, their aunts, their cousins, their friends, and their family. Uh, and you get that viral momentum that really helps build the business rather quickly. Okay, so you you say obviously grow it pretty quickly. You've you've grown to I think it's over fifty million uniques now. Is is that the number you? Yeah, fifty three million Comscore rated. Okay, um, so a lot of that growth growth has come directly from Facebook, right? I mean, I know you have you have your own website now. It's not just a Facebook group, but that's sort of where where the audience has been for you. Yeah, Facebook's definitely the uh, the biggest bulk of where we tend to curate our audience and focus them. It's the best place for we think our, our customers, our viewers, to be able to see what's going on in the world and get access to all of our content in a way that makes only the best stuff float up to the top. And I think Facebook's done a great job with the algorithm ensuring that all the stuff that people you know, probably don't want to see gets pushed down. I mean, that's their whole business, and we rely on that a lot. Okay, so, so which other 
platforms are you, are you publishing to, or is it mostly Facebook? What percentage of your audience or traffic comes sort of through Facebook these days? So it's funny. People look at Facebook as one platform. We've now looked at it very differently because Facebook has Instant Articles, which is a platform. They have Native Video, which is a platform. They have Facebook Live, which is a platform. And they're constantly adding new products to it. So we're all focused on Facebook overall. And then within Facebook, we break it into different segments. And we have teams for each one of those things. That's interesting. So you don't look at it as Facebook. You, you kind of break it down at this point? Yeah. Also, look, as a startup, you can't do all social networks. The, the amount of you know, Vine, Periscope, Snapchat, Instagram, Meerkat, it just goes on and on and on. And you know, we have close to 100 people, so I'd say fairly large for a media business, a startup media business, but not BuzzFeed levels of thousands of people. We can dedicate 100 people to Snapchat or the next flavor social network. So we chose Facebook as where we'd focus all of our attention. And as a startup, that allowed us to really scale that one social network. And then we get invited to all these new platforms within Facebook. So whether it's Instant Articles or Facebook Live, we're at the forefront of that. When you're, when you're so wedded to one platform like that, the, the, the nature of fa- the Facebook audience, it's often people scrolling th- through their news feed. It's sort of like a you, content you happen upon often rather than something you set out to, to look for. How does that affect trying to build a brand? Yeah, no, it's a good question. A lot of people um, ask, you know, how do you build a brand on Facebook? And I'd say, you know, one of the one of the biggest challenges we've had is that our audience has grown faster than our brand, right? Which is a strange phenomenon, which has never existed before outside of these new networks that allowed you this massive scale in such a short period of time. So yes, we have fifty plus million uniques going to the site. Uh, on a monthly basis, but a lot of them were being exposed to the brand for the first time. Usually, if you have that many people going to your site, you've been around for a decade plus. You're a Hearst, a Condé, right? Scripps or Cox. So we're definitely challenged where we're now brand building to catch up with our audience. So your, your audience almost doesn't know who you are. Your audience is bigger than the number of people that know who you are. Is that what you mean? I, I think there's a certain element of that. But with the amount of eyeballs we get on a daily basis, a monthly basis, we now have the opportunity to start branding. So all of our video has the Little Things logo. Everything we're doing now has the logo built into it. So as we do market research, the logo actually has a ton of brand recognition, whereas a year ago it had none. But, you know, it takes time. But you've got to think, if we're doing 50 million uniques, we're doing 300 million video views a month. Out of those video views, we tag probably two-thirds of them with our logo. The, the amount of eyeballs taking a look at that brand recognition is very, very significant. And over time, that's, that's, that recall is starting to happen. We're getting the awareness that would normally take companies decades. We're doing in, in months. How important is it, again, in this sort of feed-based world to build that brand? Because, you know, traditional media companies, sort of magazine publishers or whatever would say it's very important. But clearly, you know, you guys have sort of managed to build a substantial audience with, you know, relatively little brand recognition. So have we reached the point where brands are sort of become less important or do all of these guys, you guys included, who have sort of reached scale in digital over the last few years on these platforms now have to sort of move to a place as it sounds like you're trying to do, where they sort of build a brand off the back of it? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because you could run a successful, profitable business on Facebook without a real brand behind it, but that only gets you so far. You know, for us, we're getting more and more into direct, right? Working directly with eBay or Subaru or Home Depot. Brand is really important. In addition, we want our users to feel loyal to who we are. We want, when they see our content in the newsfeed, to recognize that brand and say, okay, I like this. I had the experience before with this brand. I'm going to click through and check it out. So what we started noticing was that 50% of our users come back weekly, 25% come back daily, which blew me away. I assumed it was kind of like one and done because Facebook is constantly moving so quickly. But that wasn't the case. We actually have a ton of loyalty and repeat uh, visits. 
Does, I wonder people people wonder about Facebook's commitment to media or the the, the kind of support they're going to give to all these different media companies. Like, how much do you engage with them? Do you get a sense that they care about media companies, or could they take or leave this business? Yeah, no, I think they care very much. I think without the content that all these media companies are providing, there'd be that that much less reason to go on to the newsfeed and check it out on a you know ten twenty times a day basis. So I think. We need each other. We need them for the traffic. They need us for the content. Um, and everything that Facebook is doing is, you know, it is for publishers and it's also for them, right? Facebook Live is a great tool for publishers. Instant Articles is a great tool for publishers. Everything they do gives publishers more tools to publish on Facebook. Now, do they want to control that, the experience? Yes, they do. But, you know, we've seen Instant Article traffic go through the roof. And, you know, last time, Jack, we, we spoke... I was kind of on the fence with instant articles. A lot's changed over the last couple of months. We're seeing really, really high engagement, really high CPMs, a ton more traffic from that platform than we've ever seen before. So I think Facebook loves publishers. I think they're just trying to control the experience to make sure that site speed is where it should be um, and obviously get a piece of, of the action. And that's what the whole Facebook audience network is about. So, so do you um, – are you seeing – Obviously, as you're seeing more traffic to instant articles, are you seeing less referral traffic back to your own site at the same time? In other words, is your audience sort of migrating yeah. or that's gravitating so, towards Facebook? That's something Facebook? we were looking at and we were concerned, but that never happens. We didn't cannibalize it. Uh, so we, you think we just got more. So our, our last two months were record months for us in terms of overall unique. So we're seeing more and more each month from Facebook, not less. I know a lot of publishers have been complaining about being dialed down. I really think it comes down to the type of content you're producing and you know focusing hard on understanding what your audience wants and producing it for them. You know, a good good example of, you know, what we're looking at right now, when you do Facebook Live, you see the concurrent users in real time watching your feed. So you could swap out people, almost like an A-B test, or swap out subject matter in real time, and you can watch the graph go up or down. So you could actually change the type of content you're producing in real time for the users as they're experiencing it. And that's just something that we've never had access to before as a publisher. And on top of all that, you look at the comments flowing in, they come in quicker than you can almost read them, which, you know, it's strange because we can publish something on Facebook native. So we, we upload a video to Facebook and we'll get, let's say, a million views and we get 500 comments and we think that's pretty good. Then we do something on Facebook Live, we'll get 50,000 views and we think, well, that's pretty bad. But when we get 2,000 comments on it. So the amount of engagement and the, the interactive nature of Facebook Live is a whole new level that I think publishers are just now starting to recognize uh, and, and it could be the, the future for, I think, for TV, you know, many years from now. But uh, I don't know. It's very exciting for us. Do you think Facebook has aspirations in sort of the TV-type OTT world? I mean, it just came out. They're spending $50 million a year, you know, getting people to start producing this live content. They have that live map where people go to discover mm-hmm. how long is it until you have a TV portal, right? My six-year-old uses Hula and YouTube and Netflix. She doesn't turn on the TV anymore. So how long is it until she goes to Facebook when I give her an account in a couple years, right? Not yet. Where that's where she discovers her content and, and the rest of the OTT platforms. But I feel like TV for this new generation, like younger than millennials, I don't know if it exists anymore in, in the same format that I grew up in at least. Sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break there, but coming up we'll have more with Joe Spizer. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Jack Marshall in New York with my colleague Mike Shields, and we've been speaking to Little Things CEO Joe Spizer. Um, so, Joe, we've talked obviously about the scale that Little Things has, has built over the past few years. Let's talk a bit about the monetization. Um, are, are you guys profitable? How are you making money? And, and how is that evolving? Yeah. So after running an e-commerce business for four years and losing a lot of money, one of, one of the cornerstones of this business was, let's see if we can run a profitable business, right? It seems like common sense. But in this day and age, knows, a digital yeah. media company that makes money is, is the unicorn, right? It's, it's very rare. Um, but I'm happy to say that we've been profitable since the first month that we started the endeavor. And we have no plans of running deep into the red uh, and joining the rest of the guys out there. So, you know, for us, we've built the business on programmatic and, you know, not to get too technical now, but, you know, it's an auction-based ad platform. Now, we've scaled it up pretty significantly and we'll do over $40 million in revenue this year. But from there, we want to take even further. And I think the way to build on top of that foundation is through direct ad sales. So going direct to um, any of the big brands out there and, and having them help us sponsor product placements, any type of um, custard-tailored uh, video which is what we're already doing for the audience, but in a way that makes more sense for the brands at the same time. So, you know, let me take a step back. If we were doing 12 bacon hacks that change your life, right, that should be sponsored by Oscar Mayer or Hormel. Or we just did a piece for, uh, for Listerine, 12 things you didn't know you can do with Listerine. That's a great product placement. But that's something that we would do regardless if it was sponsored by the brand or not because the audience loves that type of content. In this way, though, we can just get paid for it at the same time. So that's just a great way to build on top of that programmatic and take that $40 million and you know double it. Now, scaling programmatic is easy. It requires a – not easy, but it's a small team, right? Yeah. It requires technology. I don't want to minimize you know, my guys at uh, Little Things. Like, what? It's not easy? <laughs> no, it's not easy, but it requires a smaller team. To scale direct, and BuzzFeed's been having this problem now. Sounds expensive. It's high touch, right? Because yeah. everything's custom tailored to the advertiser, and it's not a scalable solution. So it requires a lot more people. We hired seven people in April to focus exactly on this. You know, Out of 100, it's a decent uh, portion of the, uh, the business, but – once we see how Q4 goes, we're looking to significantly expand that and get deeper into that space. And that goes back to your question earlier about brand. How important is brand? Brand is really important as you move down towards that direct ad sales piece of the business. Brand is, that's the emotion, right? They're buying into your storytelling ability and who you are. What do you represent? Little things represents this feel-good nature for women. That brand means something. It can't just be brandless. It, so, it's important you have that. On that note, like, how do you make sure you don't overdo it? You, you, it's hard to scale branded content, but you can also go crazy. I think if, if, if every other video was paid for by Listerine, is that a bad user experience? Is that bad for your guys' brand? Well, that's the key. It's the balance there, right? It's making sure that, one, you have the product placement in there, the user doesn't get hit over the head with it, right? So you're watching American Idol or America's Got Talent, whatever, and there's a Snapple bottle on the desk, right? Is that intrusive to you? Does that bother you as a user? Or is that just like, oh, they drink Snapple? And next time you're at the store, you're like, oh, I like Snapple. It kind of reminds you. So we're looking for something really light touch like that where it's not intrusive, where it's like a 30-second infocommercial. Our brand's asking, you know, if if you take that light touch... There's no heavy sell there. Does that work for my brand? Are brands putting pressure on you to prove that that kind of stuff sells, sells things in stores, sends people to stores? Well, every brand has their own KPIs they like to follow. Um, but usually it's the amount of views on, on the brand. It's the amount of shares, likes, comments. So there's overall, there's a ton of different engagement metrics that different brands like to pick and choose. It could be viewability, how many people viewed the video. And look, not everything's a product placement. There's also, you know, for eBay right now, we're tasked to find a bunch of really interesting arts and crafts type pieces through the eBay auction, put them all together and create something really unique, and then we post that to, to eBay, to eBay's users. 
And that's just a great experience for our users because we're creating a you know, do-it-yourself arts and crafts piece without really like hitting people over the head. But where else are you going to find all these little tchotchkes, right? eBay's a great place for that. And you know, they've been a, a client of ours for a little over a year right now. They were actually the first one to start this branded studio with us. So to what extent does that help you get around sort of the growth of ad blocking as well? Because, you know, you talked about building the business on the back of programmatic, which, um, you know, typically includes the type of advertising that consumers are increasingly trying to avoid. Um, so, I mean, is that sort of a big concern for you from a, a business perspective? Or Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, uproar about ad blocking. Everyone's talking about it. I think, you know, the European publishers obviously have it a lot worse than the American ones. For us, it's, but been it's a, changing. It is changing for, you know, if you run a video game site in the U.S. or a, a, a male-focused site. So we have a few things going for us. One, we're an older audience. Two, we're female-focused. And three, because the majority of traffic is Facebook-derived, it's coming through the Facebook app. The Facebook app is protected. So Adblock can't get into it. So we're in this cocoon right now where that's never – I wouldn't say never, but that's not an issue today. Now – Facebook could change something or Adblock could get really creative and hack into Facebook's app, but that's highly unlikely. So that's interesting. As you say, you're sort of in the Facebook cocoon. You know, we talked about building your business on the back of Facebook. It has its um, pros and cons. Yeah, right. Um, you know, working with them to help monetize instant articles as well. Um, I mean, to what extent is it worrying for you sort of running a media business, being that reliant on so many different levels on, on one partner? Um, you know, obviously, everyone always makes the the comparison with companies such as Zynga. Um, I mean, it, does it worry you that you're going to get zingered one day? Or uh, Zynga's a public company with a couple billion dollars. I, I don't know. That doesn't sound that bad to it's me. It's been a couple, couple years for Zynga, though. It's it, been some tough years, right? Because they, they flew too close to the sun. I, I think if look, I think if we keep creating really interesting, engaging, emotional content, it will find a place on Facebook. There there will be a platform that makes sense because. We're not forcing our users to read this stuff. We're not forcing them to share it. We happen to have the highest engagement of almost any publisher outside of Fox News on Facebook because what we're doing really resonates. So whether it's Instant Articles or Facebook Live or some new platform they come up with tomorrow, I feel really confident that we're going to be able to, to succeed in that place. So, no, I, I don't stay up anymore. I did when we first started. I wasn't sure what we become, what we build the business into. But at this point, I feel very secure with our Facebook uh, partnership and no, no, I'm, I'm sleeping very well. <laughs> you, you mentioned you don't want you, you can't do every platform, but how much pressure do you feel? Oh, we we better figure out Snapchat soon, or we better conquer YouTube next, or we're going to be left behind on those platforms, or is, uh, compared to just leaning in on your Facebook relationship. Yeah, so we I mean we've definitely passed leaned in. We've jumped in with Facebook, but Snapchat's a great example. You know, we definitely talk about Snapchat once a month. We have a reminder to talk about should this be a place that we look to test, look to explore. I actually got to meet Evan last week in Cannes. Um, we talked demographics, and he said every day 50% of his new users are 25 and older, which is getting older, but I need 35 and older to make it match our content and our demographics. So we're still on the sidelines. No, maybe two years from now, three years from now. Like Facebook took a while to go from college to the older demo. Maybe that happens with Snapchat. Maybe it doesn't. But we're not going to be, you know, throwing tons of money at that platform until we see the the users are there to consume what we're building. But w- would it not help you guys potentially from a strategic standpoint to? do so to an extent i mean I, f- I feel like publishers are big on snapchat and you know some of these other platforms sort of in the hope that it will um i, I don't know i guess sort of give rise to a credible sort of second player here rather than facebook just dominating the market but we're not chasing the millennials 
you know, our, our big bet is on Facebook Live in terms of a platform that can't be monetized right now. I'm, I don't think we'll stick our neck out and do another platform that can't be monetized in a, in, a, in a big way. Going back to what we talked about earlier, we like to run a profitable media business. So, you know, we're still pretty small business. We don't want to overextend ourselves. We're not sitting on piles of VC money that we can test every, uh, every platform out there. So you guys didn't go the VC route, as you mm-hmm. said, but you did. You have raised some money, right? Well, yes and no. We raised money for the pet food business. We okay. never raised any money for the little things business. Okay. Um, so do you think that puts you sort of at an advantage or a disadvantage versus you know some of the big guys that have raised millions and sort of been chasing scared over the past few years? The problem with raising millions is that you're forced to spend it. The last thing VCs want to see is that money sitting on the balance sheet collecting dust. That means that you're not, you're not able to deploy it efficiently. That worries them. So, no, I, I feel really confident that by not raising, we have the ability to control our destiny a lot more than someone else who's forced us to burn through it. Because what happens at the end of that cycle, you burn through the cash, you have to raise more, or you have to get to profitability, which is really hard to do when you've been handed so much money. You're, just, you're not thinking along those lines. You're not running your P&L for profits. So you're forced to raise again. And if you raise at too high a valuation the first time or second time around, and you do a down round, and that's it, you lose all your talent, you know, it's, it gets ugly real quick. Right. You, you, and you've definitely seen publishers chase scale um, without necessarily keeping their core audience in mind, and it hasn't been to their benefit. But at the same time, you always hear that the big ad, big ad agencies won't even talk to you unless you have a certain level of uniques. You guys are in a pretty good place, but how much pressure do you feel like to get meetings you need to have at a certain threshold or a certain number to even get the time of day from agencies? Well, we're well past that number. I mean, 50 million uniques. You probably need 15 or 20 to get their attention. So that's never been an issue getting in the door. It's been around the brand or lack thereof. Building that brand awareness has been critical to us, and that's what opens the doors. And then you hit them over the head with, hey, we have 50 million uniques, and here's all the great things we can do for, for your brand. Here's some examples of custom-tailored you know, content. That that's what gets their attention. So you mentioned Facebook Live a couple of times. I'm just curious. I mean, what are you guys doing currently? You know, what's sort of on the roadmap to try there? And again, as you said, you know, there's not yet a revenue model in place there. How do you expect that to evolve? Or what would you like to see from from Facebook on that front? So we're testing just about every type of format on Facebook Live right now. We have a game show. We have a talk show. We go to restaurants around Exploding the city. Exploding watermelons. We don't, we don't do anything like to. that. I mean, we, you know, we're doing like the newlywed game, right? Something a little bit more conservative and fun. We tend to stay away from the more gimmicky stuff just because I don't think there's longevity in that model. I think it's great that BuzzFeed got, you know, 10 quadrillion <laughs> views on Exploding Watermelon, but I don't think that is sustainable long term. I think you need to build something a little bit more quality, <laughs> so to say, so to speak. But uh, I think Facebook is quietly working on monetization strategies for live as we speak, at least from what I hear. The ability to allow the publisher to decide when to take a commercial break uh, is really interesting to me. And then running a 15-second either direct sold or Facebook audience network ad uh, should work really well. And on top of that, you can do product placements, right? So if we wanted to do a piece on Windex, we can have a Windex bottle in the, the live view and talk about all the great things Windex can do. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about monetization yet. It's just it's such a new platform right now. We're still trying to figure out the content piece of it. You know, we had a, a, a surprise uh, a week ago. One of my editor-in-chief asked me to come up to the office. She's like, there's something really important I have to uh, talk to you about. You know, you never want to hear that from your editor-in-chief. <laughs> I get into the conference room and it's been turned into a barn. Right, we have baby pigs and chicks and baby goats, and it's just it's chaos. And there's a pug chasing them around. Um, but 
that was sounds a, like when our editors call us. <laughs> it's just an average Monday morning. Yeah, bathroom. that was a great Facebook Live episode where the audience was able to name the the animals and experience this craziness in New York City that uh, that digital publishers tend to do to their bosses. But you know, monetizing that, I, I think that will come very soon. But there's no rush for it just yet. Do you ever worry that Facebook wants video to succeed more than its consumers necessarily want to consume video? I think the users, the consumers, they vote with their their mouse or their finger, right? So if they want video, they want a story more than a video or video more than a story, they're going to share and like and click and engage with that more. Facebook's algorithm is super intelligent. It's like Google SEO, SEM back in the day, right? There's so many engineers working on bringing in thousands of variables to decode and encode what's going to be shown on your feed. You know, now time on site is one of the most important metrics that just didn't exist six months ago. And that's been really interesting, right? Making sure that the user, when they click through on something, it's what they thought they're clicking through and they actually enjoy the content. That helps you get further up on the uh, on the newsfeed as well. How do you organize your business uh, or your teams internally to sort of cope with the the uh, the speed of change on this front you know to mike's point you know facebook is suddenly all in on video and it's live video and there's 360 video and there's <laughs> vr so how do you sort of structure your business to uh, i guess to sort of pivot quickly to to all these new sort of opportunities you know i've been doing startups since 98 so i guess it's it's always been in the culture we we don't have a terribly large team you know less than 100 people and everyone likes to wear multiple hats so there's not very many layers of bureaucracy and red tape so if all of a sudden there's a new platform, we grab some of the video people and some of the editors and some of the illustrators or some of the graphic designers, and we can put them all into a team and say, let's test this out. You know, let's take 10% of your time, 20% of your time. So I think multiple teams wear multiple hats, and I think that's what's worked for us. And then when you have something that's proven, okay, like this is, this is what we're going to do every single week. We're going to go live at this time, and these are the assets we need, and then you can start building dedicated teams just for that. But even then, people are going to be pulled out. Uh, for other projects that, that come about. And that's just the beauty of a startup. You never know what you're going to be working on tomorrow. To some extent, it's not that much chaos, but it's control chaos. So in, in that regard, do you think you're better positioned than some of the legacy companies, you know, the Condé Nasts and, and the Hearsts of the world? I think we're positioned differently. I wouldn't say better or worse. It's just it's hard to compare those two things. You know, we're, we're a small cog, right? They have a massive empire with all different sorts of assets, um, for us, we're really good at one specific thing, you know, digital media, social, we're great at that. You know, they have so many other subsidiaries, I can't even imagine all the different things they do. So, you know, I think they're all trying to figure out how to tackle online and digital, and some are doing a better job than others. You look at, you know, Axel Springer, they were a very traditional uh, business, and now they're getting, what, 60-plus percent of the revenue from digital? Like, where'd that come from, right? They made an initiative well, they made internally. Purchases, they made some purchases, <laughs> you know, some more expensive than others. <laughs> um, but it, it's doable if that's what the board decides at the top levels. It, it can be done. We were talking about you, you, you're doing a lot more brand content. Or, um, I wonder. I always wonder if, if – um, why don't marketers try and own their own version of little things? Could, could a brand put this together and do this themselves or build out a team that could kind of crank, crank out content on a regular basis and launch a media brand this way? Or similarly, like why did you guys choose to go the publisher route as opposed yeah. to uh, becoming, I, I guess, like an agency of sorts and sort of stamping out a similar thing for on behalf of clients, right. to Mike's point? Yeah, I mean, we've seen people create really, really good content, but without the distribution – 
no one sees it. At least it's really hard to get that distribution. It's hard to get the eyeballs on it. So, you know, coming off the e-commerce experience, we had this distribution network. We had tons of eyeballs ready and willing to consume the content that we produced for them. It was just a matter of building up that expertise and, and the bandwidth. So, it, you know, there's definitely a chicken and the egg there, but we got, I'd say we got a certain level of luck in terms of getting that audience built through an e-commerce platform. Um, whereas if you were an advertiser and you built an amazing, you know, content series around your products, you need someone to distribute it for you. You just, you can't do it on your own. It's tough. You look at, um, Dove, I think they did, um, like a girl, which was a huge ad campaign. They spent millions distributing it, but Dove is a big company. You'd think that they'd have distribution on their own, but that's just not their core competency, right? They're, they're a CPG company. They're not a media company. Right. Everybody thinks they can be Red Bull, but it's, there's really only one Red Bull that, has, that, that really has become a media brand onto its own. Yeah, Red Bull and GoPro, I think, are two really good examples yeah. to, to that effect. But they're far and few. There's not many companies that could specialize in, in media as well as their own core product. Because it's a distraction. You usually don't do those two things simultaneously. So what's next for you guys? I mean, is it just to sort of continue trying to scale the Little Things brand or, you know, you're going to launch other brands and sort of appeal to, to different demographics or what's, what's sort of on the roadmap for you guys? We're definitely going to stay loyal with our demographic. I mean, women over 30, over 35 tends to be exactly what we're really good at producing. They, they just love the content that we make. So we're not going to abandon that and open up new verticals. We're not going to get into celeb or sports or or uh, or politics. We're very happy with where we are there. Um, for us, you know, moving more into video, so longer form, I love to see, you know, a year from now, our content get recognized and get put on OTT, whether it's Netflix or Go90 or Amazon Prime or Hulu or, Hulu or any of those other, um, you know, Roku-like devices. I, I think that's really interesting. You know, I don't think we're there yet. Our quality is not ready, but that's where we're heading. And on top of that, starting to monetize it through that direct ad sales force I talked about. I'm really interested in, in making these custom-tailored ad campaigns that feel native, right? That feel like something that you'd want to consume, whether it was paid for or not. A couple of years ago, I used to constantly see in my Facebook feed these upworthy pieces all the time. Mm-hmm. They had a very distinct type of headline. You won't believe what happens next. Now, upworthy is still around, but you just don't see them anymore. How do you guys make sure that you don't go that route? Yeah, I mean, so Upworthy, uh, you know, I can't comment on what they've done, but what, I, what I've seen, um, a year and a half ago, the Upworthies of the world were doing really, really well. They had an aggregation model. They'd find whatever was trending around the web, they'd package it up and then push it out to you on Facebook. Facebook recognized that you had, like, all these publishers doing the same exact thing, and your feed would be full of a panda sneezing five times from different publishers at the you same time. You guys included, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah, we were no different. We were the same a year and a half ago. But... Facebook said, look, this is enough. We're going to start aggregating them all under one. So now when a panda sneezes, the first publisher to publish it gets the top spot. Everyone else gets kind of condensed. So we recognized that and said, okay, well, this is where the industry is going. We can't just curate other people's content. We need to do something more. We need to add more value to Facebook. Otherwise, yeah, they're going to turn us off. So that's when we started opening up our own video studios. And we started producing longer form, short form. So now 65, almost 70% of what we do is developed in-house with our own team. And that's, that's been the big difference. So all the other media companies out there, the Upworthies of the world, they just haven't focused enough on that original content. They're just too much of a curated, aggregated model. That's, I mean, that that's must dead. have been hard to do on the fly in the middle, it's in the expensive. middle of the change. It, it's, it's a, you take a flyer, right? It's expensive. But I think if you know your audience and you have a good testing algorithm in place, which is, which is key, and, and so many media companies, really large ones, don't have that right now. What does that mean? Help, help, help people understand. It means that on a, any given day, we probably produce about 50 pieces of content. 
out of those 50, maybe only half of them ever get posted on Facebook. The other half never make it. So why is that? We test every single piece to a lookalike audience on Facebook. We check time on site, likes, shares, comments, and CTR. If the piece doesn't hit any of those metrics to our, our liking, to our standards, we send it back to the editors to rewrite, to retag, to rethumb, to reheadline. And if it fails again, it goes into the, you know, it gets mothballed forever. If it succeeds, now we know we have the best version or at least a better version of that, and it goes out there. But no one else is doing that. So what happens is Facebook recognizes that every piece we put out there is really good. So the next time we post a piece, they allow us to get even more exposure on the newsfeed. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where you just keep growing and growing your reach through that mechanism. But it costs money, and it's not cheap, and it's very time-consuming. And for whatever reason, a lot of people just don't do it. So you make a bunch of content that never sees the light of day. That's that's not something a lot of media companies are comfortable with. Yeah, it's a new idea. I couldn't imagine like the Wall Street Journal testing a ton of different front page news and just cutting half of it. Like the writers would probably rebel, right? Like I worked a week on this piece and it got cut. Actually, it happens to me most weeks, but (laughs) most of the writers, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's definitely a a new method and uh, it's worked really well for us. Okay, uh, I think we're going to have to end it there. Um, But Joe, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, So that wraps things up for this week's WSJ Media Mix podcast. Uh, Join us next time for a look at the people and the issues that matter in the fast-changing world of media. Uh, For more, please check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's wsj.com slash podcasts. From New York, I'm Jack Marshall. Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. On behalf of the Media Mix team, thanks for listening. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.